Maybe you have a secret dream. You're thinking about it right now, right? Your secret dream that almost nobody knows about. You don't want them to know about it because you're afraid it'll jinx it, right? Like, <laughs> if you admit it, you're like, oh, no, it's not going to come true. This is my secret dream right here. Someday I'm going to take my wife sailing in the Caribbean. Very cool story. We had a lady in first service who's new to Grace. She's been here the last maybe six months. I said the same thing in first service. She came up to me after the service. She said, God spoke to me. I own a house in the Caribbean, and you and your wife are going to go. <laughs> I was like, I should talk about my dreams more often. <laughs> this is my secret dream. It's hard for me to write because I'm a preacher. So, like, when am I going to get away? You know, I took one week off this year. You know, I have this job that forced me to be here on Sundays, and I love what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. It's like my secret dream and the reason I'm on the planet don't really fit. So I'm afraid that it's not going to come true. What's your secret dream? Are you afraid it's not going to come true? Maybe you've lost something precious. I lost something precious this year. I won't talk about it because it's difficult and deliciously ironic. But maybe you could think about something precious that you've lost. Maybe you're afraid you'll never get it back. Can you relate? So if that's you, oh, you of the ne'er-spoken secret dream, oh, you of the precious thing lost, does Isaiah 44 ever have some encouragement for you? <laughs> Take a listen. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshulun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and will name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, 
Over the half of it he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he fouls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, um, how... The um is me adding it. Um, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, um, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. I formed you, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, ooh, receive it. Wait till I get to this part. Ooh, shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, ooh, and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of all the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, who your foundation shall be laid. Somebody shout. I mean, come on now. Ooh. Isaiah 44. I thought my brother back there, I thought it was like a question, but you're testifying. I saw your hand go up. I was like, oh boy. But then I realized it's like, it's too much for you. Like it's too much for me. I can hardly take it. Isaiah 44. I've broken it into five sections for you. And yes, today we will have the sections appearing for you on screen. Here is section one. Don't be afraid because good things are coming. Don't be afraid. Verses 1 through 2 should have all the hope you need. But now hear, listen to the words, listen to the imperatives. But now hear, O Jacob, my slave, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my slave, Yeshuun, whom I have chosen. A few things here if you want to kill fear in your life. Right? That's the hook. Right? We have these fears, fears that our secret hopes won't come true, fears that the things we've lost will never be restored. You want to kill fear in your life, hear what God says. Like any good passage of Scripture, you could quit right there. Hear what God says. Are you in a position to hear what God says to you? Are you routinely listening to what God says to you? This is, I'm asking me these questions, and hopefully they resonate for you also. Are you in a posture of hearing? Hear what the Lord says says, live like a slave, right? It says servant in the English. In the Hebrew, it's slave. Live like you are God's slave. Again, you could quit right there. I got thinking about this. This slapped me in the face this week as I realized that I am nowhere near close to living like I'm a slave, right? Our culture hates slavery. We abhor it, in fact, so much so that as I make this point, I know that it's a hard point to make because you're revolted by the idea of slavery, 
You think it's something that should be abolished. And of course, in the human context, I would agree with you completely. But from God's perspective, we are his slaves. He refers to us as such. The word here in the Hebrew is oved, which is slave. We are his slaves. Now, if you think about being God's slave, if you were really his slave and he was really your master, would there be anything for you to worry about? Would you wake up in the morning thinking, what am I going to eat today? Well, you'd eat whatever the master gave you. Would you wake up in the morning going, gee, what am I going to do today? Well, you'd do whatever the master gave you to do, right? You'd be like, where am I going to go today? Well, you'd go wherever the master told you to go. You wouldn't worry about your life. You wouldn't worry about dying. You'd just be like, my only thing is to do my job. Wouldn't that be how you'd live if you were really God's slave? You'd never worry again because your master is the God of the universe. What do you have to worry about? What do you have to fear if the master in the big house at the far edge of the compound is the master maker of all that is? You'd never be afraid of anything if you lived like you were God's slave. Know that you're chosen, created by the God who loves to help. The other thing you could do if you are uh, determined to kill fear in your life is you could, uh, you could change your name. So you could change your name from Todd, in my case, Diana, in Diana Gamble's case, Rich and Rich Brown's case. You could, you, could, you could change your name to Straight Up. Hi. My name is Straight Up. That's what Yeshurun means, the straight one. Yashar is the Hebrew root for straight. You're the righteous one. Straight up. Hi, my name is Straight Up. How you doing? If you thought of yourself that way, it's a very good chance you'd start living like you were that way. And God knows that when you live like your name is Straight Up, you'll have nothing to fear. It's good, right? And you know, fear ultimately is connected to the anticipation of bad things. Isn't that what fear is, ultimately? It's the anticipation of bad things. Because once the bad thing's already happening, you're no longer afraid. You're just trying to survive. Right? You're just suffering. You're just trying to overcome. You're just doing the work. You're just surviving. You're just getting through it. Right? You're not afraid of it anymore. Once it hits you, you're like, hmm. It's one of the good things that acute suffering brings into your life. And you know if you've suffered acutely how this is true. It doesn't make the suffering um, good. It doesn't make the event good. But you have learned on the other side of it um, what to fear and what not to fear. Right? Some of you have already faced your biggest fear. You've lived through it. It has scarred you for life. And yet you continue to walk like Jacob with a limp towards Zion. You don't fear the same way you used to fear because, I mean, fear has been made manifest in your life. And you're like, all right, I'm still here. And God is still kind. Fear is the anticipation of bad things. So it may help to know, with that said, that good things are coming. I'll say it again. Good things are coming. Look at verses 3 through 5. For I, saith the Lord, will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Here in verses 3 through 5, we see extravagance, impossible 
provision. I will pour water on the thirsty land. It's even better in the Hebrew because you look at that and go, well, I'm not a farm, so I guess I don't qualify. Then you read in the original, it says, I will pour out water, receive it, on the thirsty. That's it, not the thirsty land. I will pour out water on the thirsty. So maybe now you qualify. Or not on me if you qualify. It's you, right? You're like, I qualify now because I'm thirsty. You don't got to be a farmland to qualify. And streams on the dry ground. Whenever doubt comes in when you're going to receive a hopeful, challenging, but hopeful message like you will today, doubt's going to assail you at every point. You keep having these what about thoughts that will occur to you. You can think sometimes, but Lord, it's a desert. How are you going to bring me streams in the desert? Can't you see that it's a desert? Right? Sometimes preachers are annoying because they're like saying things are going to be good. And you're like, things are terrible. What do you know, preacher? Right? You take that same agitation, which is rightly placed, and you move it to the Lord. And you're like, Lord, what do you know about my life? Can't you see I'm in a desert here? The Lord says, aha, I will pour out streams on the dry ground. In the desert. But it's dry, Lord. The Lord here is saying through his servant Isaiah, watch me work. Watch me work. I will pour out. I will pour out. You want to kill fear? Start living like your thirst is going to be quenched, even if it seems impossible. Y'all heard me? You want to kill fear? Start living like your thirst is going to be quenched, even when it seems impossible. Possible. And the really good news is that this provision rolls generationally. Consider the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. That's a picture of the new Jerusalem right there. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Yisrael, Israel. Your offspring will call themselves by the name of Israel. What's beautiful here is that the, in the original language, to call is vaikna. And liknot means to purchase, to buy in. Vaikna, your descendants, your offspring, receive it, will buy into the name of Israel. You're like, that's dry ground right there. You know where my kids are at, Todd? I know some of your stories. I now have a son who's 18. I now lie awake at night going, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. And I know there's no end in sight. So I take great comfort from the word of the Lord who is declaring that our offspring will buy in to the name of Israel. If you think it's impossible, remember the streams in the desert. Let me remind you that family was God's idea. It's God's idea. You don't got to defend it. You don't got to trumpet it. You don't got to be all rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, family this, family that. Right? God's got it. It was his idea in the first place. I'm pretty sure he's going to take care of yours. Could I get an amen? Amen, which means let it be so. If it's his idea in the first place, I'm pretty sure he's going to take care of it. How do we know he's going to take care of it? Because he's in charge. 
Point number two, section number two. Don't be afraid because you're dealing with the only God here. Consider verses six through eight. This is great here. You're about to meet Gorilla Jesus. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Hear his triumphalism here. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Basically here, God's beating his chest. Why gorilla Jesus? Because I happened to see a video online this week before I wrote the sermon of an 800-pound gorilla literally giving himself props. He was in an enclosure at a big zoo, and he kept running around the enclosure. So he'd run around, and he'd beat his chest as he ran. And it sounded like he was playing a drum. Like it was like, he was just huge, crazy looking. So he'd run over here, and all the other apes would just scatter, just run for their lives. And then the 800-pound gorilla would look around and go, if he could speak, he'd be like, that's right. And then he'd sit down for a minute and survey his domain. And then some fool would like get too close, same thing. He runs over, everyone scatters. That's what God's doing here. He's beating his chest a little bit. Saying, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the only one, I'm the greatest. Anybody else wants to step to me, bring it. Okay, that's what he's saying here. He's beating his chest. Saying he's the greatest, he's the best. Who is like me? Besides me, there is no God. So the question occurs to us, what qualifies him to strut around beating his chest? Well, verse 7 qualifies him. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The ancient people part is crucial. Okay, in the Hebrew, it says this, Mishumi am olam. Mishumi am olam. For I appointed an ancient people. Mishumi, from me, comes not an ancient people, but the people's am olam of the world. See the difference? What do we care about some ancient people that God appointed back in the day? Those ancient peoples have vanished. What relevance does it have to today? Nothing. But if, as it reads in the original... God is not saying here, I created an ancient people, but I created all people. Well, then it's absolutely his prerogative to beat his chest whenever he wants. Because he appointed the nations of the world. So, verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you not my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. You are dealing with the one and only God of the universe here, so don't be afraid. Because you can trust him. And if you can trust him, make sure you don't put your trust anywhere else. This leads us to section three. Um, Stay away from idolatry because it's ridiculous. Okay, this is the point of verses 9 through 20. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read them all again because it's a big section. Funny, the chairman of our board came up to me today. He's never read this passage in his life. Been following Jesus his whole life, never read this passage. He's like, that passage is awesome. 
he's totally mocking idolatry and idolatrism. I'm like, yeah, he is. He grows a tree. He chops it down with half the wood. He cooks his meal. The other half he builds his God, bows down to it, and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Ridiculous. Idolatry is ridiculous. Verse 9 starts us off beautifully. All who fashion idols are nothing. This is awesome. You know what this is in the Hebrew here? All who fashion idols are tohu. What is tohu? Tohu is a very famous word. It's part of a two-word phrase that occurs in the second verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And all the earth was formless and void. Veha'aretz, and the earth, haita was tohu vavohu, formless and void. All who fashion idols are formless and void. Here's the point for us. Worshiping anything but the one and only God of the Bible leads to formlessness and void. Guaranteed, you've seen this in yourself and in the people in your social network. You'll have heard this from Joe Successful Guy when he has said to you, you know, I just can't seem to figure out why my life is so empty. You'll have heard this from Sally Successful Girl who will have said to you, you know, I just can't seem to put my finger on why I'm feeling so unhappy. Nikki's doing her master's in psychotherapy right now. She's working on an article. It's hilarious. I'm writing my sermon. She's reading me psychotherapy articles. I'm like, this is really helping. 86% of North Americans are on an antidepressant. Eighty-six? Come on, man. Well, I know why. I said, I know why. I can tell you why. Because they're all worshiping false gods. Like, what are you talking about? I don't see no idols in this room. I don't see no statues in my house. Hindus, maybe. The Baha'i, maybe. The Buddhists, maybe. Muslims, maybe. We, we, we pawn this off, right, on other religions. <laughs> Missing the glaring truth that we are guilty of idolatry. Why? Because most of us, like most of the world, are spending most of our lives chasing after false gods. Like what? Like um, self, for example. We live in an age of the world when the worship of self is more front and center than perhaps it has ever been. Notice I'm saying it's more front and center than it has ever been. I was worshiping myself when I was 17. It just wasn't on Instagram. We worship ourself. Everything's about me. My actualization. My career path. My goals. My dreams. My hopes. My aspirations. My pain. My suffering. Nobody listens to me. Nobody pays me any attention. Why won't anyone give me an opportunity? When am I going to get a chance? 
Me, 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 me. We worship ourselves. We worship success. I heard that the Emmys were down in ratings this year. Like, one of the lowest ratings in recent memory. And I was kind of happy about it, to be honest. I was like, I wonder if with everybody seeing everybody's so-called awesome life all the time, the last thing we want to see is how awesome these stars' lives are as they parade themselves like peacocks on their red carpet and put it on television so the masses can consume it and wish that we were like them and go out and buy our own Vera Wang knockoffs so we can wear that to our next award ceremony that our company's putting on to recognize the top salespeople of the year. We worship success. We bow down to it. You picked up a Forbes magazine recently. Fast company. Entrepreneur. You read the New York Times. We worship success. We bow down to it. And you don't got to be rich or powerful or famous to worship this last one. We worship self, success, and security. Everything we do if we're really ruthless with our self-examination, is in some way connected to the urge we have to save ourselves. I I can't leave my job. Well, why not? Well, because what will I do? I I can't. I can't do what God's called me to do. Well, why not? Well, because I'd have to leave my job. So? Who's your provider? Your job or Jehovah Jireh? I'm just asking. Right? Where's your money come from? Your work? Or from the God who sees? Are you a free agent? Or are you a slave of the King of Kings? Are you your own responsibility? Or are you his responsibility? Examine your life, man. It's hard work, man. I I wrote this. It makes me very uncomfortable. I got to repent, man. Every time I mow my lawn, I got to be like, just make it look nice for God's glory, not because you're trying to impress your neighbors, man. Don't be a fool. Verse 9, the things they delight in do not profit. You see why Isaiah is a prophet? The things they delight in do not profit. The prophet is reading our mail. Consider verses 13 through 17. Carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil, shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass, shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress or an oak, lets them grow strong amongst the trees of the forest. Maybe it's a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes part of it and warms himself, kindles a fire, bakes bread. He makes a god also and worships it. Makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. It's totally and utterly ridiculous. What's really scary about this is that it's not just ridiculous or funny, it's also horrific. Why? Because verse 20 is coming. Take a look at it. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And she cannot deliver herself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? 
They feed on ashes. A deluded heart has led them astray. Ashes here is symbolic of, it is a type of death. They feed on death. They feed on ashes. Their hearts have become deluded. They've been led astray. They cannot deliver themselves. The word here in the Hebrew for themselves is nafshol, their spirit, their soul. We have lost our souls in our idolatry. So friends, hear me. Um, study hard, get a good job, make as much money as you can, then you'll be happy, is not just the way it is, okay? It's a lie that death and darkness cooked up to turn you into an ash-eating idolater doomed to a life of striving misery that leads nowhere but to a grave full of, you guessed it, ash. And here we are, toeing the line, working the system, spending our time in the matrix. Hey, everything's awesome. As long as I get my stake. Why is this so scary? For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The words of God cursing Adam post-fall in Genesis 3. Same word, ofer, ashes, dust. Same word, church. For ashes you are, and to ashes shall you return. Ki ofer ata ve'al ofer tashuv. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is why Jesus, the dust buster, had to come. You remember that one, won't you? Jesus, the father is the 800-pound gorilla. The son is a dust buster. God the son entered into human history and went to a cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins. In that moment, in that great exchange that Jenny referred to so beautifully off the top, isn't she a wonderful invocator? I keep telling her, girl, she's gifted. That great exchange she's referring to, of course, the words of C.S. Lewis, probably the greatest Christian writer who ever lived. In that moment... Jesus' goodness comes to you. Your badness goes to him. In that moment, he gives you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The dust buster shows up and cleans up your life. Hallelujah. Or in the words of our text in verses 21 through 23, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be made beautiful in Israel. Section 4, remember him because he won't forget you. Verse 21, you will not be forgotten by me. In my notes here, I have one word. Boom! Exclamation mark. You remember him because he won't forget you. Hallelujah! Why do we remember him? For he has what? Blotted out our transgressions like a dense 
haze. And your sins like mist, they return to me, for I have redeemed you. I never saw it like this until I wrote this sermon this week. I always thought it was like a two-part statement, and your sins like mist. And then I thought it was like, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Right? So I thought that sins like mist was connected to the transgressions like a cloud. So I thought it was like, your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Pause. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Then I worked with it in the Hebrew, and it says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. Pause. And your sins like mist, they return to me, for I have redeemed you. And I thought, that'll preach good. That'll preach good. Because my sins have returned to God. As Jesus hangs on the cross, my sins go to him. His righteousness is imputed to me. My sins are credited to his account. His righteousness is credited to mine. And Isaiah prophesied it 2,000 years, 500 years before it happened. 2,500 years before us, 500 years before Jesus. Woo! God speaking through his prophet for your encouragement. God is taking your sins back. He's like, one more thing you won't forget. He's like customer service at Walmart. He's taking it back, no questions asked. That's right. You're welcome. Right? Walmart revolutionized the customer service industry when they instituted a no questions asked return policy. You bring it back to them for any reason, and they will take it back. You come to Jesus for any reason with any amount of baggage, he will take your sins upon himself. In fact, he already did it at the cross once for all time. If I was John Hagee, I would say, give him praise. I don't even like him that much, but I like that phrase. Help me, Lord. I'm almost done, worship team. So, this is why I get excited sometimes. Verse 23. In light of the fact that he's like Walmart, sing. Woo-hoo! Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he will be made beautiful in Israel. Don't ever let nobody tell you to calm down. Once you get excited about what Jesus has done for you, go ahead and shout it from the rooftops. Go ahead and sing it from the mountaintops because the mountaintops already beat you to it. You want to forget your fear? I was going to, anyway. You want to forget your fear? Remember your Redeemer. So in light of that, section 5, let's put our worship where it belongs. I close with verses 24 through 27. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Remember he started with the womb in the first section? Now he brings it back in the closing section. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Yerushalayim, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Yehudah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, 
and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Church, you want to conquer fear? Put your worship where it belongs, with the Lord, your Redeemer, the Master Maker of all that is, frustrator of liars, confounder of those who think they know better, the one who keeps faith with his people and who promises the city of God that she will be full and who promises the temple of the Lord that she will be built. And last time I read Ephesians chapter 2, it looked to me like you were that temple. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Your foundation shall be laid. So you see that, um, that thing you lost? It's coming back. That secret dream in your heart, it's coming true. Never fear.